Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for, I don't know, friends that want to have a party together. I'm Tim McNinch, Assistant Professor of Hebrew Bible at Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. I'm Rosie Candlethal, a PhD candidate in Hebrew Bible at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University in Ohio. <laughs> in Ohio. <laughs> and uh, this is a party episode of First Reading because we have all three of our current hosts together in one space to talk about the lectionary texts. And uh, this happens to be also the week that we're diving into the season of Lent. So a good time to have a party, right? <laughs> the first reading for the first Sunday in Lent, which is February 26, is from the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 2, 15 to 17 and 3, 1 to 7, which is, uh, what do you think? The story of original sin? <sighs> you had to go there <laughs> right away. I just, That's what my Bible says. Like, <laughs> at verse 7, like there's so many things to be angry about, about this. I, normally I'm like, okay, I can understand what happened here. And I sort of understand what happened here in terms of the lectionary, but I'm still angry about it. And like cutting it off at verse 7, it's the most, in like just it doesn't make any sense. Like why would you cut the story off literally at its knees and then not tell what happens next. So that's my first preaching point. Like if you're gonna, if you're gonna, if you're gonna read this story, not even if you're gonna preach on it, but if you're gonna read this story, do the whole chapter. Like just do just do the whole chapter. That's my first thing. My rant was gonna be more about like the whole like lectionary text for this week, which oh, uh yeah. like so I mean Tim talked about this being the original sin passage, but the problem is that the word sin is not in this passage at mm -hmm. all. Neither mm -hmm. is the word fall. Mm -hmm. Neither is the word apple. Mm -hmm. Neither is the word Satan. Preach. So uh, no, none of those, none of those words are in our lectionary text today, but together Genesis two with Psalm 32 with Romans five and with the Matthew four temptation of Jesus all create this kind of um, herd mentality toward sin, <laughs> fall, you know, temptation, Satan, right, in this passage. And I, I think that's yeah. maybe one of our our first rants is like, please, oh my gosh. <laughs> A lot of this stuff is read back through Christian doctrine uh, into yeah. this passage. And so maybe we could start by talking a little bit about what we see as Hebrew biblicists right in this passage before we start moving into some of the problems here. What's actually here? Um, mm -hmm. you know, in our yeah. reading today. So let's, let's make sure that we're on the same page as far as what we're looking at. So there, there are a few verses that we have excerpted from chapter two in Genesis, mm -hmm. which is basically the uh, notice about the tree, that there's a special tree in this garden, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they're forbidden to eat from that because it says in verse 17, uh, when you eat that fruit, you will die. The plot thickens, right, in right. chapter 3. And so we get those sort of first seven verses. Or if we're reading with Rachel Wren, we mm -hmm. have the entire wow. chapter. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. And I, I think that's really helpful if we're, if we're talking about what actually is in this text and what's not. You know, Rosie, as you already said, the word sin does not show up in, in Hebrew. That's chatar, chatat. 
Um, and that's just not in here. It's not in here anywhere. What is in here over and over and over again are words about knowledge. So in chapter two, mm. in that verse 17 that Tim talked about, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then jumping to chapter three, the serpent is called crafty, which is a translation of a Hebrew word that can be sort of like shrewd, as in the shrewd manager, if you're thinking of that parable from Jesus. But it can also just be sensible. It can also just be prudent. Um, so it's not necessarily mm. a negatively connotated word the way crafty sort of is in English. But either way, it still has to do with knowledge, your knowledge of how to do things or how to live in this world. In verses four to five, the serpent says, God knows that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman looks at the tree in verse six and sees that it's desired to make one wise. In verse seven, they knew they were naked. And then rounding out at the end of the chapter, which we should all be reading unto, is verse 22. <laughs> they humans have become like us, knowing good and evil. So if this isn't a chapter about sin per se, it is a chapter that is very concerned with issues of knowledge. That's that's a great insight, Rachel. Thanks for bringing that out. What what do you either of you, what do you make of that? Like why the emphasis on knowledge? What is this bringing out about knowledge? Yeah, I so I think I mean and this is where I think one of my first preaching points would go is that the the connection to knowledge brings us helpfully away from this concept of original sin and first sin. And it more kind of um, leads us into this conversation of, do you know what is good for you? You know, I, I, so I've been studying anger a lot. And one of the, uh, one of the texts that always comes up is Jonah and Jonah's really mad at God for, you know, not being a bloodthirsty slaughtering God, like we all want, um, <laughs> at least when it comes to our enemies. And when Jonah gets really mad about that, what God says to Jonah is, is it good for you to be so angry? Do you, do you know what is good for you in this instance? So if, mm. we, if we take this concept of sin and kind of put it to the side for now, we'll talk about it more in a bit. But if we, if we look at this passage instead about just knowing, do we know what is good for us? And what are the things that lead us into territory that we might not realize is not good for us to be there? Yeah, I was going to say too that um, this idea of pointing to knowledge too. There's a early Christian interpretation of this passage as as one in which uh, it's an allegory for humanity moving from uh, its state of childhood and innocence and maybe being protected in the garden toward maturity. And that's not a bad mm -hmm. thing, but that they, you know, in some ways we're growing into an adult world, and so being expelled from the garden is not necessarily uh, a punishment, but in some ways just they were entering the world that they had been protected from. Mm -hmm. And, you know, now we're expected to navigate, right? So if, if we might look at it as you know, a larger story about humanity moving from a point of kind of self um, regard toward a more, you know, a, a larger sense of what their relationship with the broader world might entail, right? So there might be something there in terms of just thinking about this as um, as as a knowledge of becoming an adult. That's interesting. So you're, are you saying that eating the fruit was a good thing? Well, I mean, this is a, a lot like an interpretation of a Christian doctrine more largely, right? I mean, during Good Friday, we sing about both the, um, this moment being the uh, a, a dark moment for humanity, but also the greatest light in that it gave us the opening for Christ's coming and for our redemption, right? Ultimately, right? So I think that 
ambiguity remains in this text. It, what is actually yeah. happening here? You know, it, is it is it a fall? Um, you know, and, we, and many of us might still think about we want to go back to our childhood and that innocence, but in, in larger moments, we might realize the benefits of being um, adults. You know, who are mm -hmm. not protected from. Um, you know, the, the real world in this sense. So, you know, there are different ways of thinking about this, but that yeah. idyllic return to Eden is not possible for most of us, like, that, nor would it be a good. Yeah, it, that makes me think about this text as um, something that might be less about um, explaining the origin of the way things are. And it might be more of a mythological setting of description of the way things are. So rather than mm -hmm. giving us the sense of why the world seems so complex and broken and ethically ambiguous, it's a, it's a story that shows that this is the way the adult world is and invites us to navigate that. I think so. And I, I think that there's, you know, something to this, this concept of um, the way we romanticize children and childhood, especially in the United States as innocent and blissful and happy all the time. And, you know, when you, when you have kids or when you work with kids and you really walk with them, like there's a lot of anxiety, there is a deep sense of um, insecurity because of the lack of control they have over their lives. And it, it reminds me of that moment when um, they realize they're naked, they sow fig leaves, they hear God coming and they hide. Um, they hide because they're afraid. And there, I think there's something about that, that, you know, once you have knowledge of good and evil, mm -hmm. then you kind of have to learn what to do with it and, and how you can navigate those series of control or power with this knowledge. So I, I think that, you know, I think that this could also be a, a story about power and how one deals with power when either you're not ready for it or, or you mess up with it. How about Satan? How about Satan? <laughs> well, Rosie's right. There is no Satan in this text, right? We have a, nope. a snake, a talking snake. That's pretty interesting. But uh, <laughs> the characterization of this serpent is is nothing um, demonic, right? It's yeah. and and maybe we can. I would I would love to camp for just a moment on the that word crafty to go back to Rachel's introduction of it because it's one of the things I really love of the language of this passage. So in Hebrew, the word there is ahum, mm -hmm. and uh, it it can mean crafty, but it can also mean naked. And mm -hmm. the the line before three one it says the serpent was more ahum than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. And you can think, you know, snakes have a sort of, like, they don't have fur. They uh, they actually mm -hmm. shed their skin, take like taking off uh -huh. their clothes. And so they are kind of more mm -hmm. naked than any of the other animals. But if you look back one verse, at the end of chapter 2, 2.25, the man and his wife were both arum. They were both naked and not ashamed. Mm -hmm. And so there's this linguistic connection between these two verses right back to back. The man and his wife are naked nice. and then the serpent is naked. And there's this wordplay about that. <laughs> and then, of course, at the after the whole thing goes down, what do they do? They realize that they are arum and they, they clothe themselves. Mm -hmm. 
that's delight. I have I had never noticed that before, Tim. Tim, I wonder if you could also um, connect that to this idea you were talking about about how this passage might be an etiology uh, for how humans might think of themselves in relationship to God. Right. Because that is, uh, that is, a, a, uh, at the heart of the issue here, right? That's what the serpent says is that if you eat this fruit, God knows that you will become like God or like the gods because it's Elohim, right? Plural. So there is a sense here of attaining a, a kind of new status through the consumption of this particular fruit, which again, just we'll keep riffing on our Hebrew here. The fruit of this tree, which is, as Rosie rightly points out, not an apple. Uh, mm. This tov vera, good and evil, is I would consider it likely a kind of merism, right? Where you have two extremes that stand for everything in between. So in a way, this is not specifically mm -hmm. knowing good and specifically knowing evil, but talking about the knowledge of good and evil as a kind of omniscience, right? Of knowing everything from good to evil. So maybe kind of an ethical omniscience of understanding mm -hmm. the range of, of ethical options available, that that was maybe withheld from them, but through eating this fruit, they would become like the gods or like God, having an understanding of the range of ethical options out there. So for me, this is a kind of uh, story that talks about or raises the fact that humans are very much like the animals, but in, in an important way, also like divinity, right? That we have this sort of self-reflective ethical sense that yeah. we feel distinguishes us from the rest of animal creation, even though we share the physicality of, of animals. So there's something etiological. Yeah. That's another, that's like a $50 word, right? Uh, this is, there's an explanation, even though it's not necessarily meant as a literal explanation, but it's an explanation recognizing that we are different from animals and somewhat like God, but kind of stuck in the middle there somewhere. See, I, I, I think that's hugely important. I think that if you're talking about the, the point of this, the point of this is not about sin. The point of this is not about the fall. The point of this is trying to explain how are we not animals and not gods? Like how do we occupy this median middle space? And what does that mean? So in Genesis 1, they're given dominion over all the things. And in Genesis 2, they're still kind of trying to figure out, well, what does that look like? Granted, they're two different stories, you know, but canonically, by putting them together, they're trying to figure out, okay, then how does one act and interact in this society, in this world, when one is not animal and not God, but one is like animal and like God at the same time? Now, later interpreters like Paul reach back for this text when they're trying to describe things like sin. And so that's where it really starts to get woven together in this larger tapestry, which we assume has something to do with sin. But I think I could really see a beautiful sermon that asks people to sort of put that on hold for a second and then just really dwell in this idea what does the what is the the purpose of humanity in the world what what does it mean to be like animal and like god 
Um, before we really dive into what we would advise preachers to do with this complicated text, uh, I think we should also hit the preaching pitfall that has to do with the way that gender is portrayed in this text. Where do you want to go with that? Because we we have sort of the the key characters in this particular scene are the snake and the woman. So Tim's pointing to this um, kind of historical tradition, which even the way that these verses have been cut apart, right, um, kind of focus in on the theme of sin and fallenness, and then focuses in on Eve's role as the initiator, right? So bringing sin into the world, um, in the passage, it's it's focusing in on Eve and the the snake's interaction here, right? So, um, one thing to be kind of aware of is how this passage has been used historically, not only um, to talk about how women maybe are responsible for bringing sin into the world, but then also for the punishment, right? Or what looks like a punishment is that Eve is then subordinated to her husband Adam, right? And so that's this passage has been used to to talk about why that's the right order of society, um, that Eve is somehow more to blame for this situation. So just to be careful of that as a, as a pitfall and to be aware of the ways that this passage has been used. There are other ways to look at Eve's role. If you're, if you're looking at women here, that there are other biblical interpreters who look at this as a potential ideal of how gender equality, um, can be presented. So, you know, one way to think about this is in the first creation story, it's Adam, it's an earth creature that's created a genderless creature. And that later in the text is when um, a gender is created, right? And the idea is that Adam should not be alone, that, uh, that Adam should have, Adam, the earth creature should have another equal partner. And that that is the kind of story of how Eve's generation begins there. So anyway, to be thinking about this passage um, in ways that have historically really hurt women. And men, I mean, all of us, humanity suffering yeah. through that. And, and it's, it's in some ways, it's so ironic because the Romans 5 text that's paired with our um, lessons for today doesn't actually mention Eve. Uh, the author of Romans just says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So um, there's even a dialogue in the Bible mm -hmm. itself about where the blame, quote unquote, should fall. For this text in particular of Genesis 3, I think it's pretty clear that there's no blame to be had he more heavily on either party. Uh, in verse 6, Eve took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. There, there is a conversation that happens between Eve and the serpent, but Adam is uh, is the, the earth creature, number one, is right there, um, is right there the whole time. I do find it so ironic, however, that this text is used to justify a, a hierarchical relationship between men and women. And I find that, I mean, almost kind of comical for a couple of reasons. Number one, because it, you know, it's part of the punishment. It, it was not God's, it literally was not God's original intention. I think the other thing that's funny about that is that uh, the curse for the Adam, the, the first earth creature, is that um, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. Um, in toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And yet we've 
we've really developed a lot of technology to lessen that part of the punishment and really, you know, try to fight against it. So if we're going to fight against one part of the punishment, we should probably fight against the other part of the punishment as well. So I, I think the text actually doesn't lend itself well to lifting up that hierarchy. And there's a lot in there that kind of fights it. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I think if I if we were to transition to preaching angles now, one of the places that I would go would actually to be talk about um, to talk about well two things. Number one would be listening, and the second would be reconciliation. I think while the word sin doesn't appear, there's obviously something that happens that breaks something in the relationship between God and humanity, between human and human, between human and animal, and. There is a recognition here that once something happens like that, once something is broken, you have to kind of stitch the pieces back together, or maybe torn is a better word. Once that relationship fabric is torn, you have to somehow stitch the pieces back together. And this is another reason why I would really suggest reading the whole thing, because verse 7 has this lovely little bookend in verse 21. In verse 7, as we've said, the eyes of both were opened, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. In verse 21, the Lord God made, it's not the same verb as sewed, but made garments of skins for the Adam and the Adamet, if you will, or for Adam and Eve, and clothed them. And what I think is really beautiful about that is that it's this conception that reconciliation doesn't look like going back to the way things were before. Once the fabric is torn, it will always be torn. There will always be that scar there. But sometimes it looks like moving forward. And sometimes it looks like, dare we say, new life or new creation. Um, and God really is about the business of bringing about new life, even in the midst of uh, the when the fabric of our lives is torn. So I think that this, this conversation, this text really lends itself well to a sermon about reconciliation and about just being honest about what reconciliation really looks like in our lives. I'm trying to figure out what to say here because um, I'm not sure how to preach this passage, really. <laughs> I have this uh, theological leaning here of going back to my point about this not being an explanation or a way to cast blame on our earliest ancestors. This is meant to be read descriptively as showing how we actually participate in the brokenness of the world around us. The curses that are enumerated here, even though they're set in sort of a mythological language, we recognize that life's a struggle, that reproduction is messy and difficult and painful. Uh, just getting food on your plate requires all sorts of effort, that relationships are broken, that the earth itself suffers under the weight of human abuse. Like all of this really rings true for our modern experience and causes us to reflect. And so my, my instinct would be to preach along those lines. I think there's sermon potential there, but I also want to just add the caveat that the way this story is presented going beyond the lectionary text, these are presented as punishments. It's not just sort of here's how the world is. And it's not even necessarily sort of like natural consequences. There's divine agency in this that could be described as punishment. So I don't know. Does Genesis 3 get a pass as far as the problematic divine punisher stuff that seems to be kind of embedded in it? Uh, one thing that, um, that you said 
really resonated with me in in the kind of tension between individual sin and communal consequences, right? So one thing that in your pointing out that these are, they're not just natural consequences, that they seem punishment, that they are apportioned to each of the actors in this story in some way, that there is something to be said that we don't often lift up together, which is that, you know, when we fall short, it's not just us that suffers, but there are communities mm -hmm. that suffer, right? And so the punishment is not just to these individuals who are in this small story, but the punishment resounds across time and across generations, right? So in the way that you're talking, Tim, about this story, talking about larger realities, things that we have a hard time maybe talking about uh, concretely, things that have happened to us in our own traumas, we are only now realizing through modern tools of psychology and therapy that they are not just for that individual life, but they often affect an entire family, an entire genogram, like so generations of, of pain through one act, right? So there might be something to be said about how this story addresses a, a really hard thing for us to talk about um, in this first Sunday of Lent, which is, you know, what are the consequences of ways that we've fallen short and not just to ourselves, but maybe for our communities, right? So um, in the collective meditation on these stories, there, there might be a way for us to offer back, you know, what are ways that we might want to think about how our own actions impact our communities, right? So mm. and I, I like that idea. I think it's, a, I, this is passage is hard, right? And I, I don't want to take that away. I think that that's what adds to the richness and why the story speaks across time and generations and cultures. They all have something to say about the basic tension that humans live in, not mm. only with the created world and God, but, you know, with one another. So the, this very short story, if you look at it, only a few verses really allow us to talk about some very large things. Well put, Rosie. Rachel, you had another point you wanted to toss in here too, right? I think so. And I think that it. this is where, you know, were I preaching this, I might jump from Genesis to actually the gospel text. You know, the word sin is all over the place in the Psalm and the Romans reading for today, but it doesn't occur in the first reading and it doesn't occur in the gospel lesson either. So what happens when you put those two in conversation with each other, Genesis 3 and Matthew 4? And what you see then is a really interesting highlighting of what happens when you listen to certain entities? In the first one, it's the snake. In the second one, it's Satan. And in both, those entities are sort of questioning what God is asking of us. The Matthew text, Rosie pointed out earlier uh, before we started recording that um, the devil says things to Jesus and Jesus just keeps quoting scripture at him over and over and over again. And so as this voice is trying to move Jesus to do something, Jesus invokes the voice of God or invokes the voice of humanity having experienced God in the past. And I think there could be a really powerful sermon there that maybe doesn't focus on sin and doesn't even focus on punishment, but just focuses on this question of to whom are you listening? And are those voices bringing you to God or bringing you away from God? Are those voices encouraging you in your journey with God or uh, pulling you away? I'm really glad you brought up the connection between the gospel and this passage too, because I think it relates back to this point that Tim made too, is that this passage is on a basic level trying to describe the tension between um, living between the animal kingdom and, and 
God or divinity, right? And that that is a line that's here in the temptation passages as well. Satan, the yeah. adversary, keeps tempting Jesus to make himself appear more godlike. You know, so it, you know, make this stone into bread, jump from the top of this temple, prove that you're really God, right? And Jesus's response is to quote humanity, to keep walking that line of, of, of humility and saying, I don't need to prove who I am, right? And so there are, and the other really interesting thing is if you look at the Matthew passage, it is the spirit that leads Jesus into the wilderness, right? So it's mm -hmm. God that's still in control of this experience. And mm -hmm. the Garden of Eden is created by God. And so this conflict that happens uh, over whether or not the humans can take up this fruit of good and evil. That's also engineered by God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, you two are really helping me get a better grasp on this. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> this is helping me, especially <laughs> the point that Rosie was making about communal consequences for individual actions. Going back to the gospel reading and the Romans reading from Paul, there's both the potential for our poor actions to have widespread consequences. But there's also a hope here in these texts that actions for the good of others will have rippling effects out and have a kind of restorative effect on the world. You see that in the Romans text in particular, because it has both sides of the coin, right? Evil enters the world through the actions of individuals, but also Redemption comes through the actions of one man, a man, a person, a human being. I love that. Also bringing that into as an impetus for starting off Lent, right? I mean, just that hope mm -hmm. is that even our small actions of change uh, during this, you know, month of looking toward Easter, that it matters. Our choices can matter. And so it, it, it might affect the way that we go into this season. It's not just any other Lent, but every moment maybe matters or counts in ways that we might not immediately understand. I think we're on to something there. Well, I think we should probably wrap up our conversation here. Hopefully, friends, you've gotten something from this party of a conversation about a fascinating but complex text and set of texts. We'd love to hear from you for good and evil. So <laughs> would you send us some communication? You can interact with us on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com, or you can find us on the Facebook. You can also send an email to us at firstreadingpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we're looking forward to being with you next week. Until then, I'm Tim McMinch. I'm Rosie Canathal. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. <laughs>